in her life. He put the paper down angrily. What about you blokes, anyway? When are you going to do something? The voice of the public, worried, frightened, and looking for a scapegoat. Dwyer nipped his cigarette and slipped it back into the packet. We'll get him, Sam. He'll overreach himself. These nutcases always do. Which didn't sound very convincing even to himself, and Harkness laughed harshly. And how many more women are going to die before that happens? Tell me that. His words echoed back to him flatly on the night air as Dwyer moved away into the night. Harkness watched him go, listening to the footsteps fade, and then there was only the silence, and beyond the pool of light, the darkness seemed to move in towards him. He swallowed hard, fighting back the fear that rose inside, switched on the radio and lit a cigarette. Joe Dwyer moved through the night at a measured pace, the only sound the echo of his own step between the tall Victorian terraces that pressed in on either side. Occasionally he paused to flash his lamp into a doorway, and once he checked the side door of a house which was by day the offices of a grocery wholesaler. These things he did efficiently, because he was a good policeman, but more as a reflex action than anything else. He was cold, and the rain trickled down his neck, soaking into his shirt, and he still had seven hours to go, but he was also feeling rather depressed, mainly because of Harkness. The man was frightened, of course, but who wasn't? The trouble was that people saw too much television. They were conditioned to expect their murders to be neatly solved in fifty-two minutes plus advertising time. He flashed his lamp into the entry called Dob Court a few yards from the end of the street, hardly bothering to pause, then froze. The beam rested on a black leather boot, travelled across stockinged legs, skirt rucked up wantonly, and came to rest on the face of a young woman. The head was turned sideways at an awkward angle in a puddle of water, eyes staring into eternity. And he wasn't afraid. That was the strange thing. He took a quick step forward, dropping to one knee, and touched her face gently with the back of his hand. It was still warm, which could only mean one thing on a night like this. He was unable to take his reasoning any further. There was the scrape of a foot on stone. As he started to rise, his helmet was knocked off, and he was struck a violent blow on the back of the head. He cried out, falling across the body of the girl and someone ran along the entry behind him and turned into the street. He could feel blood, warm and sticky, mingling with the rain as it ran across his face, and the darkness moved in on him. He fought it off, breathing deeply, his hand going inside his cape to the two-way radio in his breast pocket. Even after he had made contact and knew that help was on its way, he held on to consciousness with all his strength only letting go at the precise moment that the first police car turned the corner at the end of the street. 1. It had started to rain in the late evening, lightly at first, but increasing to a heavy, drenching downpour as darkness fell. A wind that, from the feel of it, came all the way from the North Sea, drove the rain before it across the roofs of the city to rattle against the enormous glass window that stood at one end of Bruno Faulkner's studio. The studio was a great barn of a room which took up the entire top floor of a five-story Victorian wool merchant's townhouse, 
now converted into flats. Inside, a fire burned in a strangely medieval fireplace, giving the only light, and on a dais against the window four great shapes, Faulkner's latest commission, loomed menacingly. There was a ring at the doorbell, and then another. After a while, an inner door beyond the fireplace opened and Faulkner appeared in shirt and pants, a little dishevelled, for he had been sleeping. He switched on the light and paused by the fire for a moment, mouth widening in a yawn. He was a large, rather fleshy man of thirty, whose face carried the habitually arrogant expression of the sort of creative artist who believes that he exists by a kind of divine right. As the bell sounded again, he frowned petulantly, moved to the door and opened it. All right, all right, I can hear you. He smiled suddenly. Oh, it's you, Jack. The elegant.